This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Good morning again. Is that what I say? Good morning again. We're here. Uh, still in 1 Corinthians. Today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians one of the, the longer letters um, of Paul. And uh, I, I wanted to open uh, with this reminding you all maybe of a 2003 pop song by the Black Eyed Peas called Where Is the Love? And this probably uh, exists somewhere deep into your memories. I feel like it's been played a lot. People killing, people dying, children hurt, you hear them crying. Can you practice what you preach? And would you turn the other cheek? Father, 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 help us send some guidance from above. Because people got me, got me questioning, where is the love? Where is the love? Our world and the, and the Black Eyed Peas are touching on something that our world honestly does believe, that there are problems in the world and that love is actually one of the solutions. They believe that things like poverty, slavery, exploitation, random and, and, and senseless destruction can be caused, uh, can be repaired by love. That love for others empowers great people to stand up and change things. Love for their people, love for their nation has allowed some leaders to do some very selfless things. And of course, this sort of love doesn't apply just to the greatest of us, but also to the smallest. It's why when you're scrolling through social media and you see those videos um, of little kids doing small acts of kindness, it just melts your heart. We believe that there's something right there, something that's bringing healing to the world. And usually you see it attached to some posts like, we could use more of this in our world. We believe that love for each other is the answer. But amazingly, <clears throat> even in this 2003 pop song, uh, this Black Eyed Peas song, as they, as they get further into the song partway through, they go back to this refrain and they start asking this question, where's the love, y'all? And there's a background voice that answers that says, I don't know. And immediately following that, it says, and where's the truth, y'all? And a background voice that says, I don't know. And it just goes right back into the chorus. We just need more love. <laughs> it's like the Black Eyed Peas is self-aware enough to go, hey, what the world needs is love, and we have no idea what that looks like. Christians also believe that love is an answer for the world's problems. It's written all over the pages of Scripture. But maybe unlike the world, we believe that there is truth about this love. God's word tells us what this love looks like, why it is that it brings healing to the world, why it's the best love. And here in this passage today, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul is going to be talking about this kind of love. So I invite you to stand as we read 1 Corinthians 13, and we stand uh, in, in respect for God's word. Um, Ronnie, one of our former pastors, used to say it this way, uh, this is the best part of the whole sermon uh, because this is God's word. This is God speaking to us. So hear these words from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, 
And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. But for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. This ends the reading of God's word. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. So we're exploring what kind of love changes the world and why Christians believe uh, that there is a love that is, in fact, world-changing. And what we're going to see in this passage, what's kind of going to guide our uh, exploration of love today is these three points. It's that love is tangible, that love is pure, and that love is mature. So those are going to be our three points today, that love is tangible, that it is pure, and that it is mature. Now, you know the phrase, it's the thought that counts. Um, I often find myself daydreaming about this phrase uh, as uh, those times of year come around we're supposed to celebrate uh, anniversaries. Or one that happened this last year was Mother's Day. You know, uh, often my lack of preparation for these sorts of days can be covered in, in places that I've lived. Like living in Kansas and Missouri, it wasn't necessarily hard to get dinner reservations. Um, it wasn't necessarily hard to find flowers. Uh, but this last year in the San Juan metro area, uh, not preparing for Mother's Day uh, to find flowers proved to be a minor disaster. I spent a day driving around trying to find someone that had flowers. So I found myself in that moment saying, it really is the thought that counts, isn't it? If I don't find them, isn't it just the thought that counts? Now, I was actually able to find some flowers, and so we all breathe a sigh of relief because you guys all know it's not really just the thought that counts. There's something about that preparation and that work that matters, that's tangible. But you know, ironically enough, Margarita actually doesn't really appreciate flowers all that much. So even in my thinking and kind of panic covering, I still was just doing something that the culture said I should do for her and didn't actually see how to love her. So although she appreciated the flowers and appreciated the work that I had gone through, there's something about it that was still merely sentimental, that missed the mark slightly, fell short of what we might consider love to actually do. There's something about love that needs to be more than mere sentimentality. Mere sentiment devalues love. It cheapens it. Mere sentiment doesn't count. I needed to see Margarita for who she was and what she loves, 
not just what society says I should do on Mother's Day. Instead of honoring the day, I cheapened it with sentiment. Did you know that our Christian language, when we are speaking the truth in love, can often feel like mere sentiment? It can feel like it doesn't count for anything. James chapter 2 uh, talks about faith and works in a particular way. And what James chapter 2 is trying to show that if you say that you love the poor and the hungry, but you don't actually clothe and feed them, it's just mere sentiment. If you say to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things that they need, what good is that? And Paul here in 1 Corinthians is saying very much the same thing. If we look at verses 1 through 3, you'll see him say, If I speak in tongues, if I prophesy, if I understand in knowledge all doctrine and theology, and if I have all faith even to move mountains and have not love, end of verse 3, I gain nothing. It counts for nothing. It is mere sentiment. Not only that, but at the end of verse 2, Paul will say, I am nothing. Not only does it make sentimental uh, the very thing that I'm trying to proclaim, but it actually devalues my very own belief systems. It cheapens it. If I do these miraculous things without love. Now, the first point here is to remind us that Paul really believes that these gifts are important and worthwhile to seek. If you remember from last week, we talked about the spiritual gifts, and we said that they're important and worthwhile to cultivate, to develop, and to grow. But these gifts on their own count for nothing. They need a certain kind of love, a certain kind of tangible love that transforms them. You see, for Paul, having theological and doctrinal knowledge, for, for example— is a good gift to pursue and work towards. But without love, it'll end up being mere sentiment because you'll just be talking about doctrine and theology without it ever touching the ground somewhere with that person that you are interacting with or maybe even your own soul. A mere intellectual exercise. Mere sentiment. The spiritual gift is wasted. It counts for nothing. Paul describes this as a clanging cymbal or a noisy gong. And one translator, uh, and just trying to describe what this would have been like, in, like what the Corinthians would have heard when they heard these terms, um, said that it would have been like background noise, uh, like stuff that was probably a little bit annoying even. But it's like, what is that? I don't know. It's unintelligible. It means nothing to me. After Jesus had ascended into heaven, the apostles were around Jerusalem, and they were working all sorts of miracles. And the high priest said, enough of this, and Jesus' followers, and threw him in prison. Now, one of his religious leaders that reported to the high priest came up to him and said, you know, we've seen other people work miracles. We've seen it. And you know what happens? They die, their followers disband, and they come to nothing. They're just background noise. These men here that follow Jesus, Jesus died. Let's just beat them, let them go, 
and eventually they'll disband. They'll just become background noise. They don't have the substance. What made the apostles different and why we are still Christians today, 2,000 years later, was that they weren't just working miracles. Other people had done that. That actually wasn't that impressive. (laughs) They needed something along with it to make it more substantial. Paul is advocating that Christian world-changing love can't just be background noise. It must actually love those that it seeks to reach. It must actually love those within its midst. Love is a key component to Christianity, and without it, everything else becomes background noise. I think our culture tends to look at Christianity right now as mostly background noise. Something noisy that might be a little bit annoying, but it's mostly ignorable. And I wonder if that's because, like other miracle workers in the first century, our Christianity today has devolved into mere sentiment. If Christians have become a people who are marked by certain political parties or a certain kind of moralism, not by something tangible and truly different. Instead, they see something common and mundane, something partisan and prudish. I can't help but be drawn to the reality that the kind of love that Christians um, showed in the first centuries and, and throughout history that stood out and made their love tangible was that they showed it to those who society hated the most. In a time where children, and especially girls, were abandoned as babies on top of trash heaps because they were worthless, Christianity went out and cared for those children. At their own expense and time and money, they built orphanages. Similarly with hospitals, in a time where people believed that sicknesses were a result of moral wrongdoing, you must have done something wrong, which is why you're suffering this, and so you've earned the suffering that you're receiving. Christians went out and said, let's build hospitals. Let's tend to their wounds. Let's give them tangible love. I wonder if there's people that we refuse care to because we believe that their uh, moral indiscretions have earned them some sort of punishment. And I wonder if in that sense we become mere sentiment instead of showing true world-changing love. Christianity is supposed to have a tangible love, one that impacts, one that stands out against other world religions, that is more extensive more far-reaching. You see, it's not only that we don't gain anything by it, as if we could just gain followers to put in the chairs in this room, but it's that verse 2, end of verse 2, I am nothing. If we remove love from our Christian faith, we undermine who we are. We undermine the person that we say that we follow. We water it down. We make it mere sentiment. We make it background noise in our own lives. Christianity is just something I do on Sunday. But the rest of the week, I'm me. 
Christian world-changing love needs to be tangible. But this leads us to a second question, which is, what does this tangible love actually look like? So this will be point two, and we'll see that it needs to be pure. And this part of Paul's letter is really interesting, because we could probably assume that the reason that Paul could write this is that people in Paul's day also thought similarly about how to fix the problems in the world. They probably also had people around that were like, yeah, we should probably just love one another, and we would do better at it. But Paul here is going to show that this love needs to have a certain kind of purity, one that the world can't really fathom, a certain kind of drive. You see, I think if you were to ask philosophers in Paul's day what this love might look like, they would say that it would be patient, kind, that it does not envy or boast. If you were to ask them to define love, these are things that they would all say. It is not arrogant or rude, does not insist on its own way, is not irritable or resentful, and does not rejoice at wrongdoing. I think most reasonable people are like, yeah, that sounds like love. Where Paul carries it to next is a little bit further. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Paul, in this section of verses here, in 4 through 7, most, most commentators will look at that and say, this is poetry. Paul's bordering on poetic language here. Some even go so far to say is that uh, Paul wrote drafts of 1 Corinthians, which is likely, you know, he sat down and he wrote one and then he prayed about it and thought, like, oh, I don't want to change this before I send it to them. You know how, like, you write an email first and then you save it before you send it to your boss that you're upset with so you don't say anything you don't really need to? You know, he's kind of having frustrations with Corinthians, so he may have written a draft and said, like, uh, let me table this for a second. I'll come back to it tomorrow and then edit it up. So they say that he's doing this and then on the side writes this poem and then says, you know what? This needs to go in here and then adds it later. Paul doesn't tell us if he does that or not, so we can't know for sure. Ends up being speculation. It's in here. Um, And this poetic language is oriented towards a, a certain kind of love. What it has in common in all of these things is that worldly love expects reciprocity. But Christian love is completely selfless. Now, the reason that I think that this all orients towards this in these section of verses is because of what we've been through already in 1 Corinthians. Let me just run through it really quick. Chapter 1, how do we begin to address conflict? If you've been here for our, our 1 Corinthians series, one of the ways that we do it is by giving thanks for the other person. Chapter 3, how do we find meaning in our work? It's because it's oriented towards God and not ourselves. Chapter four, how do we know when we've done right? Well, it's not when we try to be right in our own eyes, but when we try to be right in God's eyes. Chapter six, our bodies were made to live God's version of the good life, not our own version of the good life. Chapter seven, God gives you freedom to choose between the good and the better, not to serve self, but to serve others and God. Chapter 8, we lay aside our freedoms for the sake of the weaker brother. Chapter 10, we can't make evangelism about ourselves, but we have to make it about Jesus. Chapter 11, the Lord's Supper creates a community because it focuses all of us on Jesus. Chapter 12, our spiritual gifts are used to help someone else's faith by proclaiming Jesus more clearly. And here in chapter 13... Paul is just putting a capstone on this. He's saying, love for the other person. 
orients everything about the Christian life. And it is so fundamental to the Christian life that without it, not only do you not gain anything, you are nothing. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never ends. There's a lot of people inside and outside of the church that we're called to endure or bear with. There's a lot of people both inside and outside of the church that we're called to believe in, to not give up hope in. Paul gives us this list of attributes, but as I've mentioned, the world expects a certain kind of reciprocity with their love. It believes that offering love first is a good sign of virtue, but offering love to someone who rejects it time and time and time again is foolishness. But Paul says Christian love loves without reciprocity, even if it means martyrdom, even if it means being mistreated. Christians are patient, kind. They aren't arrogant. They aren't rude. Frankly, I find it astonishing how many Christians justify their rudeness and arrogance. I find it astonishing how often I justify my rudeness and arrogance. These verses, four through seven, are often read at weddings. It's because our world wants to believe that world-changing love should be on its best display at weddings. A love that brings true unity, a love that is tangible, and a love that is pure. And our culture often associates this marriage kind of world-changing love with simple emotions. I feel this way towards you, so I will be patient and kind, not arrogant and not rude, because my heart just bubbles over with love. But true world-changing, marriage-defining love isn't based off our emotions. And we even acknowledge this in our wedding ceremonies. We say for better or worse, in health or sickness. And I don't know if you've ever been in worse or sickness, but that's usually when your emotions aren't at their most loving. This kind of love is based on something else, something more true. It's the vow. The marriage vow protects the purity of love even when the love isn't being reciprocated by the other. Our marriage vows borrow this from Christian theology. We see this here in this passage, an idea that something higher protects this love. And for Christian, this higher thing that protects our love for the other, in Paul's logic all throughout 1 Corinthians, is that we look at other people like God sees them. We are to see them as God made them to be, not as who they are in this moment and how they're treating us here and now. We bear with all things, and we hope all things. Even when their love isn't being reciprocated, we bear with it, because the love that the Father has for us overwhelms our need to depend upon someone else's reciprocity of love towards us. And so our love actually becomes more pure. It becomes more lovely. So this Christian world-changing type of love needs to be tangible and it needs to be pure. And our last point is going to be why Christian love is guaranteed to change the world. You see, the idea that our culture has about how to change the world uh, relies on mere sentiment and on reciprocal love. That's true. But they also rest on vague, ill-defined goal of love. There's just some 
uh, I forget how the Black Eyed Peas song says it. Well, they say something like, it's one, one world, y'all, or something like that. I didn't write it down in here. You guys know? Is that right? No one's nodding along with me. No one knows the song. This is embarrassing. I think they know it. It's so vague and ill-defined. And usually what they mean, they've got something in mind as a particular time and a place. This space that I exist in, these people that I work with. There's kind of a temporal focus that it's only the here and now. Everything's got to be fixed right now. Everything's outrageous because it's got to get fixed right now. Of course, love is seeking to fix these things in our world. Love takes time. Paul recognizes, though, this tendency to be caught up in uh, temporal actions in, in verses 8 through 12. That Christians can be so caught up in the here and now uh, that they lose sight of what the ultimate goal of love actually is. Those things that get us caught up here and now are actually, according to Paul, are spiritual gifts. Crazy, right? Those gifts that we said were worthwhile to pursue, those things that were worth developing can be those same things where we try to lift ourselves up. <laughs> where we start losing sight of why we have these gifts and we start saying, actually, these gifts are for me. These gifts are to make me look awesome. Paul compares prophecy, tongues, and knowledge, three gifts which apparently in Corinth uh, seem to be most contested, and I would argue that it's probably just as likely today. And he compares them to maturity in verse 11. When I was a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. He says that these gifts, <clears throat> the spiritual and God-given gifts, can distract us from the broader picture and keep us in a limited and immature point of view. Now, I think when we hear Paul talk about like child and man, we hear a sort of paternalism that isn't there because he's talking about love, you know, like be a man, suck it up, grow up, stop being so childish. I don't think that's really what Paul's saying. <clears throat> We don't need to shame children for being children. Excuse me. <clears throat> children are immature by nature of being children. Joaquin, <clears throat> give me one second. Didn't want to mic that for you. I feel better. Joaquin, my two-year-old right now, is rightly focused mainly on himself. And I don't know if you've met my two-year-old, uh, but the kid can talk. Like, I don't know if that's the spiritual gifts of tongues, but if it is, man, he's got it. Now, if you were to listen to Joaquin talk, he talks almost exclusively about himself uh, and about his friends and about his toys and about his things and about me, me, me. We don't necessarily fault Joaquin for talking this way. In fact, we kind of celebrate his gifts that he is talking so much. But if at 25 years old, Joaquin can still only talk about himself and cannot talk to or with other people, something's gone terribly wrong with his maturity. Now, how does this apply to spiritual gifts? And I think what Paul is trying to say is that spiritual gifts must mature. They must grow. And what are they growing towards? Their ultimate goal the goal of proclaiming Jesus Christ, as we said last week. That's why he says this mirror dimly. Because our spiritual gifts only proclaim Jesus Christ um, as far as they are mature. 
And even then, it's still a mirror. Even if we could be as most mature as we possibly can with our spiritual gifts, it's still not the real thing. You know, we want Jesus Christ in his fullness, but we're working towards making that mirror as shiny as it can be. I can't evaluate all of your spiritual gifts in this time, um, but I would like you to reflect on those things that you do think are your gifts, those things that you think that God has gifted you to be good at. And as you use those to proclaim Jesus Christ, I, I want you to reflect on whether or not you use those gifts to proclaim Jesus Christ better whether you use them to lift yourself up a little bit. Because it seems to me that Paul understands that new believers might utilize their gift in innocent but often immature ways. And love from the mature people in the faith bears with some of this immaturity and trains them up in righteousness to be able to proclaim Jesus better. But nobody faults new believers for expressing their gifts in the ways that God has given them. But if they stay there, and they're not honed, they're not matured, they're not aged. It doesn't become more directed towards Jesus. Something's gone wrong. Does hospitality slowly become an opportunity for you to show off your immaculately immaculately kept home, prepared meals, or witty conversations? Or do you actually use your hospitality in order to show people Jesus? that they might feel his company in your presence, that they might feel his love, his care for their lives, his care for their nourishment, does that saturate your dinner parties? As a small example of this, yesterday we held a Crossing Cultures talk, and although I had heard many of these principles uh, before, uh, they're good to hear again and again as I'm living outside of my home culture here in Puerto Rico. Uh, Many of us, that's the case, and many others of us have also uh, had experiences where we are operating outside of our home culture and have experienced that culture shock. And we would say people who are new to a place or to culture shock um, aren't faulted for needing a space where they need to vent, where they need to kind of express their frustrations, to complain a little bit. But if let's say three to five years in to living in Puerto Rico, you still find yourself complaining only about Puerto Rico, it seems that something's gone wrong with your maturity. It seems that the spiritual growth may have plateaued and that love may have been hidden away in exchange for withdrawal and cynicism. We, of course, understand that crossing cultures is difficult. But as Christians in love, we seek growth and maturity. So there's something about Christian world-changing love that is not only tangible, not only pure, but also mature. But there's just one problem. None of us do this. (laughs) If I could think back of those actions in the last week that I thought were loving, if I were to look back and be like, man, that was not a bad action, you know? I, I think I did all right there. Maybe I checked two of these boxes. Maybe it was tangible. It actually affected someone's life. Uh, and, and maybe it seemed mature, but man, it was mixed with a lot of selfishness. Like I was hoping to get something out of that conversation uh, or out of this relationship. Maybe it's pure and it seems mature, but it's just empty knowledge. It's just background noise. There is no actual tangible change offered to this person's life. 
when Christians are so bad at showing love, at living out this kind of love, why do we, agree, why do we believe that this world-changing love exists? I'm just going to read a few passages borrowed from uh, passages around Scripture. We believe that there is world-changing love, and we believe that that causes us to love. We love because He first loved us. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christians don't only believe that their kind of love can change the world. They believe that there is a love that has already changed the world. That he came, not only showed us what love looks like, not only gave us guidance, Father, 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 give us guidance from above, but actually loved us. We believe that one came who gave us truly tangible love. He didn't offer mere sentiments, but he offered his flesh and blood. And he not only offered it to those who would love him back in reciprocity, but to those who would betray him, to those who would spit on him, who would abandon him when they said that they were his friends. And it was the most mature love because it was God himself on that cross. God himself revealed to us and says, do you want to see how great my love is for you? Look at the cross. That is how far I'm willing to go. Love came down and rescued us and changed our lives. So Christians believe that this world-changing love can spill out everywhere because we've experienced it in Christ himself. We don't bow the knee to ourselves, to our own vague, ill-defined versions of love, of just agreeing with worldly sentiments on how reciprocity should be received. We bow the knee to Jesus Christ, our Lord, who showed us and gave us the most powerful, world-changing kind of love. Would you pray with me? Father, 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 help us. We do need guidance from above. And we are so thankful that you did not just send us guidance. You did not just send us your word with instructions on how to do it better. But you sent us love embodied. You sent us love that would rescue, love that was tangible, love that was pure, love that was mature. Father, I pray for those of us who know Jesus Christ as our Lord, that even today we might taste this love. And Lord, I pray for those who today do not know Jesus like this, Lord. And I pray that they may experience this truly world-changing love in their own lives. Amen.